الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب اليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم وبعد First let me begin by thanking Uh, the brothers uh, behind this conference and also the brothers here at Masjid al-Farooq uh, for hosting uh, me and um, the other brothers who are here for this event. Uh, indeed, it uh, brings a Muslim great uh, pleasure to discuss uh, such a noble topic as the companions of the Prophet of Allah radiallahu anhum wa sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama. I typically don't travel, especially in... Uh, during uh, the uh, semester time, but when uh, I was invited to come to talk about the Sahaba of the Prophet wasallam, I could not only but find myself uh, to uh, reciprocate uh, to the invitation. Uh, the topic which I was asked to address this morning or this afternoon uh, has been entitled The Readiness of the Companions of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, in Following Allah and His Messenger. And I have divided the topic into three uh, parts. Uh, the first part is a discussion of some of the Quranic verses uh, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed uh, to uh, His Prophet and addressed the companions, uh, commanding them to obey Allah azawajal and to follow the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The second part of the talk will be discuss some of the reasons as to why the Prophet's companions were such in, uh, in terms of their dealing with Allah's commandments and the sunnah of the Prophet And finally, I'll conclude by giving some examples of the companions' readiness uh, in terms of following uh, the Prophet or Allah's commandments. Now, Allah in the Qur'an, in many passages in the Qur'an, He addresses the believers uh, with His words, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا O you who believe. And these verses, while of course they are addressing all the believers, all those who believe in Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from the time of their revelation until the end of time, however, they were first and foremost addressing the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As when those verses were sent down from Allah, azawajal, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا O you who believe. The address was first and foremost toward the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. Yes, it does include the rest of the ummah from their time until the last remnants of this ummah, those who will be with Isa ibn Maryam ﷺ and those thereafter. But first and foremost, the address is directed toward the Prophet ﷺ and his companions because they were those who had iman when these ayat were sent down. And if we look at these ayat where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses uh, the believers, uh, not only do we help, it will help us understand as to how the Sahaba, uh, عنهم, reacted to the commandments of Allah and to the commandments of the Prophet وسلم, but also it provides for us a benefit in that it teaches us how we should act. For it's, while it is good for us to know how the Sahaba were, 
this increases our faith and increases our trust in them and so forth. But the main purpose of mentioning them is so that we may follow their similitude. And so therefore, by bringing, beginning with these commandments of the Qur'an, which were sent down uh, specifically to them, and by extension including us and all of the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ until the Day of Judgment, as I mentioned, uh, we understand how their attitude was, and also we learn ourselves on how our attitude should be. So let's take some of these ayat from the Qur'an. Uh, we find one ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أُتْكُلُوا فِي السِّلْمِ كَافَّةِ وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا خُطُوَاتِ الشَّيْطَانِ إِنَّهُ لَكُمْ عَدُوٌ مُّبِينٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in this ayah in the Qur'an, O oh, you who believe, again the address is to the Prophet sallallahu and his companions initially, and by extension to the rest of us. Enter into a sin holy. And I'll explain what the word sin means momentarily. So here is a command. O you who believe, addressed being to the Prophet and his companions, and then to us by extension, enter into a sin holy and do not follow the footsteps of Satan. For indeed he is a clear enemy unto you. So what is this sin that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet and his companions to enter holy into it? And also not to follow the footsteps of Satan, who is an avowed enemy or a clear enemy unto them. The sinim is, as uh, the scholars of the Arabic language have explained, it means uh, to submit. And it means uh, to um, sort of uh, be compliant. So submission and compliance and uh, being uh, rectifying oneself with Allah's commandments, all of this enters into the word sin. So it's the religion of Islam in reality. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He commands the believers, the companions first and foremost, and us by extension, that they should enter into Islam, into Allah's commandments, into, into, uh, into obedience to Allah, into compliance with Allah's regulations and that of His Prophet, uh, into rectifying themselves so that it's in agreement with Allah's words and with the words of His Prophet, wholly, not partially not part of them and leaving yet part of theirs to their own desires or their own opinions or so forth. And at the same time they should avoid following the footsteps of Satan. For Satan is an avowed enemy unto them. Let's take a, a, second, a second example. Uh, in Surah Al-Imran, in the following surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ حَقَّ تُقَاتِهِ وَلَا تُمُتُنَّ إِلَّا وَأَنْتُمْ مُسْلِمُونَ Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressing the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and his companions first and foremost, and us by extension, says, O believers, fear Allah. Um, we should maybe say, I mean, um, show taqwa unto Allah. And then I'll explain what the word taqwa means. Show taqwa unto Allah as he deserves. As his taqwa should be deserves. And do not die except as Muslims. And the taqwa in the Arabic language, means to place between you and something a barrier. And so then in the sense that a taqwa to Allah, is what here means to place between you and Allah's anger and wrath and punishment a barrier. So here the ayah is saying for the believers, being the Prophet ﷺ and his companions, first and foremost, and then us by extension, that they should place a barrier between Allah's anger and Allah's wrath, and between them and that. And that barrier should be as deserving of Allah, whose wrath is such that none punishes like him. 
and that they should be ascertained that they do not die except in a state of submission unto Allah. Do not die except as Muslims. Islam means that's pure submission unto Allah. So here we find another command from the Quran. Let's take a, a, a third uh, command uh, from the Quran. Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the believers, that being the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa his companions first and foremost, and then us by extension. Ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu ati'u Allah wa ati'u rasul O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the Messenger. Wa ulil amri minkum. And those who are in charge of your affairs. فَإِنْ تَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي شَيْءٍ If you differ in anything, فَرُدُّوهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَالرَّسُولِ Refer it back to Allah and His Messenger. إِنْ كُنْتُمْ تُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ If you truly believe in Allah and in the last day, ذَلِكَ خَيْرٌ That is best for you. وَأَحْسَنُ تَأْوِيلًا And it is a better conclusion of your affairs. In other words, the dispute will come into a better end when you do that. The correct end. The best way to conclude the affairs. So here in this ayah, again, we find a Qur'anic prescription to the Prophet Sallallahu and his companions and to us by extension, where Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is commanding the believers to obey Allah and obey His Messenger. And also those who are placed in charge of them. Now, wouldn't amri minkum, it refers to the scholars, it refers to the rulers, it also refers to anybody who is in charge of any affair of the Muslims or whose opinion will bring benefit to the affairs of the Muslims. I mean, it's a generic term. If you differ in anything, then refer back to Allah and His Messenger. And then Allah tells us that this is a condition if you truly believe in Allah and the last day. So that if you do not refer your, back, your affairs back to Allah and His Messenger, the implication is that you do not believe in Allah and the last day. It's an indication of unbelief. And that this to do such is better for you and it will result in a, a better end to your affairs. And likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands in Surah Al-Ma'idah, in the following surah, Allah the ayah previous that was in Surah Al-Nisa, Allah commands, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَابْتَغُوا إِلَيْهِ الْوَسِيلَةِ وَجَاهِدُوا فِي سَبِيلِهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands, O oh, you who believe, again the address is to the Prophet and his companions, and to us by extension, have taqwa unto Allah, which is to place that barrier between you and Allah's anger and wrath, and seek unto Allah a means which will bring you into His paradise, which will bring you into His pleasure, which will bring you into His happiness with you. And also struggle, wage jihad. Of course, the jihad here in the most generic sense means any sort of effort, but specifically here it refers to fighting in the cause of Allah. And then if you're to do this, if you're to place this barrier between you and Allah's anger and seek a means that brings you closer to Allah and then add to that waging jihad in his path, perhaps you might be successful. The implication is that if you do not place this barrier between you and Allah's wrath, if you do not seek a means to bring you closer to Allah, if you do not wage jihad in the path of Allah, then you will not be successful. That's, that's the understanding of the ayah. Uh, likewise, in the same surah, Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again commands, commands the, the Prophet sallallahu uh, companions, the believers, and us by extension. Ya amanu, la tas'alu an ashya' in tubda lakum tusu'kum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, do not ask about things. That if you're to ask about them, if it was to make clear to you these matters, it would make you saddened. 
It will make you feel bad. And the Prophet's companions understood this. This is why we find, as Ibn Abbas who mentions, that he says he praises the companions of, among whom he is one of them by saying that the companions of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, were such that they only asked the Messenger of Allah like 13 questions or 10 questions. You find in the Quran, yes, alunaka. They ask you. It only occurs about 10 or 13 times. Because they were not one to try to delve into things, but they would respond, as, as we will see uh, when we finish these passages from the Quran, and we will enter into their, uh, how they used to react. And likewise, in Surah Al-Anfal, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُوا اسْتَجِيبُوا لِلَّهِ وَالْرَسُولِ إِذَا دَعَاكُمْ لِمَا يُحِيكُمْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands, He says, O oh, you who believe, again the address is to the Prophet's companions and us by extension, Respond unto Allah and His Messenger when they call you to that which gives you life. And know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervenes between a man and his heart. And unto Him you will be resurrected for, uh, for, for judgment. And here the intervention means that a person would be upon guidance but because he, he seeks to disobey Allah Azawajal, so Allah will intervene between what he knows and him acting upon it. So Allah will send him astray. And likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the same surah after a few ayat says, يَا أَيُهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَخُونُوا اللَّهَ وَالرَّسُولِ وَتَخُونُوا أَمَانَتِكُمْ وَأَنْتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O oh, you who believe, again the address is to the Prophet Sallallahu companions and to us by extension, do not show treachery unto Allah and unto His Messenger. And show treachery towards your, your covenants, your trust. And you know what you, know, you have uh, uh, made as forms of your commitments and trust. And as Ibn Abbas has explained, whoever does not obey Allah Azawajal gives up one of the things that Allah has obligated upon him, he has shown treachery unto Allah Azawajal. So this treachery unto Allah means any form of disobedience enters into treachery unto Allah Any form of disobedience to the Prophet is the type of treachery unto the Prophet And likewise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the same surah again commands the Prophet's companions uh, directly and to us by extension by saying Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu taqullaha inta taqullaha Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu inta taqullaha yaj'alakum furqanan that if you show taqwa unto Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you a furqan, a criterion, by which you can distinguish between truth and falsehood. And He will also expiate from you your evil deeds. And He will also forgive you your sins. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a Lord of much bounty. And likewise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَكُونُوا مَعَ الصَّادِقِينَ Again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down this ayah to the Prophet's companions and to us by extension, saying for them to have taqwa unto Allah, place that barrier, and at the same time be with the sadiqeen, be with those who are truthful. In other words, that their profession of faith is manifested to be true due to their actions. Their actions coincide with their, their profession of faith, and so therefore there's no hypocrisy or no uh, type of... Uh, uh, divorce between what they say and what they actually do. And in another surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيْهُوَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَقُولُوا قَوْلًا سَجِيدًا يُصْلِحْ لَكُمْ أَعْمَالَكُمْ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ وَمَنْ يَطْعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدْ فَازَ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, again addressing the Prophet's companions and us by extension, have this taqwa unto Allah, put this barrier, and say a truthful word. Which is la ilaha Allah, and it's also any word of truth, any truthful statement. Again, the, uh, the intention here by truthful statement is not just speaking true words, not lying, but it means that your words and your actions are in agreement. That's the truthfulness here. What will happen if you do this? Yuslih lakum Your deeds will become rectified and your sins will be forgiven and whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger, he will have won a great victory. And in Surah Muhammad, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, telling us of the dangers of not obeying Allah and His Messenger. يَا أَيْهُوَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَطِيعُوا الرَّسُولِ O you who believe, obey Allah and obey His Messenger. And do not render null your deeds. Meaning by disobeying Allah and disobeying the Messenger وسلم, you can render your deeds null. And indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also has said, commanding the Prophet's companions and us by extension, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُقَدِّمُوا بَيْنَ يَدِ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ O you who believe, do not step forward between the hands of Allah and His Messenger, meaning before Allah and His Messenger's command. وَاتَّقُوا الله. And, uh, and have this barrier between you and Allah. إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ Allah hears and knows everything. And finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also commands the Prophet's companions, uh, we'll take this as a final example, even though there are many more, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيْهُوَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا تُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ تَوْبَةً نُصُوحًا O you who believe, again the command is the Prophet's companions, and to us by extension, repent unto Allah. And the tawbah means, we say we translate it as repentance, but it really means to go from one path back to the correct path. So it's to go away from being astray in any sense, back to the straight path, uh, a, a, a true repentance, a true tawbah, a true return. Uh, these uh, examples, and I gave about 13 or so, uh, from the Qur'an, we find in each one of them, Allah addresses the believers by commanding them to obey Him, obey His Prophet, enter into Islam fully, uh, not to disobey them, not to, not to disobey Allah and His Messenger, not to follow uh, the footsteps of, of Satan, uh, if they differ to refer back to Allah and His Messenger, that if they obey Allah, Allah will forgive them their sins, that they will be victorious in the hereafter, uh, that they should not render their deeds... Uh, no, by not, not obeying Allah and His Messenger. That they should respond to Allah and His Messenger's command. So all these ayat were revealed to the Prophet's companions. And these ayat left a mark upon the Prophet's companions. We see this mark in when we take certain examples of certain commands that came to the Prophet and we see how the companions responded to those uh, commandments. Let us take for an example the ayat or the final uh, ayah which was revealed regarding the prohibition of khamr, intoxicant drinks like alcohol and wine and so forth. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse in Surah Al-Ma'idah Ya ayuha ladhina aminu inna al-khamru wal-maysiru that khamr, uh, intoxicating drinks and maysir, gambling wal-ansabu uh, ansabu is a type of pagan practice wal-aznamu, uh, divining um, um, uh, type of pagan practice where they used to have altars to slaughter to uh, the, their deities. Well, Aznamu, which is a type of uh, uh, divination uh, using arrows. Rijsun min amal shaytan, a evil uh, filth from the handiwork of Satan. Fetchjani so avoid it. La'alakum tuflihun, that you might be successful. 
Anas who tells us that at the time that this ayah was revealed, he was pouring wine uh, to some of the companions of the Prophet Anas ibn Malik was a small uh, boy in the Medina. He used to serve the Prophet and he used to also serve the other companions. So he said, I was pouring wine to Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah, one of the great companions of the Prophet in fact, one of the ten who's been given glad tidings going to paradise. And to Ubay ibn Ka'ab, another companion of the Prophet Sallallahu who uh, memorized so many surah from the mouth of the Prophet Sallallahu so much so that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, tells us that if you want to take the Qur'an as it has been revealed fresh and so forth, that you should take from the recitation of Ubay ibn Ka'ab. And a group of the Prophet's companions with Abu, at the household of Abu Talha. And I had given them enough alcohol to the point that it had started to affect them. In other words, they started to get drunk. Okay. So a Muslim, one of the Muslims came and he said, made an announcement, have you not realized that Al-Khamr has been now forbidden? So what was their reaction? I mean, here they are, they're drinking. They've drunk a degree of an amount of it so that as, as Ennis has reported that they start to become a little bit intoxicated, a little bit drunk. And an announcement is made that that uh, Khamr has been forbidden. So Abu Talha tells Anas, pour out what is remaining with you. In other words, pour to the ground. And uh, Anas reports, he said, by Allah, neither nobody entered nor left except that we had uh, stopped drinking. In other words, immediately when the command came, Abu Talha, even though they were drinking, and they were at that time, and they had even gotten, they were a little bit, you know, intoxication had started to take over them. Immediately they, they started to pour out what they had. In one, in one narration it says that the streets of Medina start to flow with, with the wine. And in a third narration it says that what they did was they started to break all the jars that had the wine in Medina. And so then Ennis also tells us that <coughs> they began to make wudu, some of them, and some of them made hus, to go to the masjid, to hear the commandment of the Prophet and to hear these, and that they also put on some perfume. So it also shows how they, you know, respected Allah's house, that they came in there, you know, they didn't just go out as they were, they had just been drinking, so they made wudu, some of them made hus, they put on perfume to go out to Allah's house, to the masjid. What did they ask the Messenger of Allah? This is very important. Did they start asking the Prophet, well, you know, I mean, under what cases, what should we do about the Khamar, you know, we still have some. No, they didn't ask about this. What was their question? They said, the question they asked the Prophet, they say, what about our companions who had died before us and they had drunk? So, Al Khamar was in their, in their belly. Alcohol was in their belly. Because there were Muslims before the revelation of this ayah who had died, some of them in jihad, some of them died natural death, and so forth. So what about them? This is what their concern was. So what did um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayah, لَيْسَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ جُنَاحٌ فِي مَا That there is no sinfulness upon those who have faith and do righteous de- deeds concerning what they had consumed previously. What does this show us? It shows us that how the companions reacted. I mean, we take from this story many lessons. First of all, when the command came, they immediately dropped what they were doing. 
I mean, Ennis was pouring for them. They had already started to drink. I mean, Ennis even describes that they were, some of them had become, you know, the, the effects of them drinking had already started to affect them. And yet they poured out immediately what they had. The streets of, it wasn't just the household of Abu Talha with these companions, but the streets of Medina started to flow with khamr. They started to even break the jars that they used to have al-khamr in it. And the Arabs were very poor. So it wasn't even a situation where they said, okay, let's pour it out and let's maybe keep these jugs and so forth. But actually they broke it. And then they decided to go to the masjid to hear, because the announcement was made in Medina, so they want to go hear from the Prophet himself. They make wudu, they make ghusl, they put on their perfume. They go on, what's the question they ask the Prophet They don't argue with him about Allah's command. They don't question it. They don't try to find stipulations for it. But they're concerned about now their brothers before them who had died and had died before Al-Khamr was forbidden. And as they said, they had died and then their bellies was Al-Khamr. Whether they had died in jihad or they had died natural death or I mean, whatever. It shows you how their, how their readiness was to obey Allah and His Messenger. Let's take a second example. <clears throat> the second example is concerning riba. Riba was one of the final prohibitions in the Quran. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, in, in the end conclusion of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَذَرُوا مَا بَقِيَ مِنُ الْغِدَى إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, show taqwa unto Allah, in other words, put that barrier between you and Allah's anger and His wrath and His punishment, and give up what is remaining of riba, if you are truly believers. When this ayah was revealed, was revealed, uh, one of the tribes who had just become Muslim at the time of the revealing of these ayat was the tribe of Thaqif. And the tribe of Thaqif, they used to live in Ta'if, which is to the south of Mecca. It's a mountainous area to the south of Mecca. And they were one among the last tribes of the Arabs to enter into Islam. So, <clears throat> the Thaqif tribe had um, uh, one section of the Thaqif tribe, the, the section of Amr bin Umayr. Uh, they had between them and the tribe of uh, the subsection of uh, the Makhzum tribe, uh, Banu uh, Mughira, which is a subgroup of the Makhzum tribe, between the two tribes was a form of riba during, in the days of Jahiliyyah. So the Thaqif, they, they just, when they became Muslims, the Thaqif tribe said that, well, you know, we need to take our, the money that, the, the interest which is owned to us by the other tribe. The other tribe said, no, in Islam we're not going to give interest. Because there already had been some prohibitions concerning interest and so forth. That, that, uh, uh, that, you know, that interest was going to be uh, um, you know, prohibited. But I mean, the Thaqif felt that, well, this is something which was already done in the past. So you know, the right is still theirs. I mean, it's forbidden for us to take interest in the future. But what's from the past is, is, is still I mean, you know, our money and still you owe us the interest on it. So they wrote to, they, they, they contacted the, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, uh, the person who he placed uh, one of the, the second in charge of Mecca, Itab bin Usayyid, and Itab bin Usayyid wrote the Prophet a letter in Medina regarding this now this dispute between these two tribes. So Allah sent down these verses, huh? O you who believe, give up, uh, put a barrier between you and Allah's wrath, and give up what is left of riba. So what did the Thaqif tribe say? So we have repented unto Allah. By Allah we will not ask any of it, and they left the issue alone. As soon as the verses were revealed. Again, this shows how their reaction was. They didn't try to argue with the Prophet ﷺ. They said, well, you know, we're not going to engage in riba anymore. 
We're now Muslims, but this is something from the past and so forth. Once the ayah was revealed, give up what is left of it, they just gave it up. They said, we repent to Allah. Uh, likewise, uh, another example which we can take uh, is concerning um, uh, the ayat in uh, Surah An-Nur uh, regarding uh, women covering themselves, the way they dress themselves. It was, it was the practice of the women in Arabia before uh, Islam, and they used to cover their hair, the women in Arabia. But what they used to do with their head covering was they used to throw it behind their backs. Okay? So, the head covering would be put behind their backs, thereby leaving their face, right? Their neck, and also their chest exposed. So, you could see their earrings, you could see their neck, you could see the, their chest, and so forth, because their head covering was placed behind their backs. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in, in Surah Nur uh, gave the commandment that they should take their head coverings and cover uh, cover their neck and their breast area. Uh, the jabe uh, is this you know area where you stick your head through the dress. You know what I'm saying? Your clothes. Okay, so um, they should take it and they should cover this with it. So in other words, they swing it around them, thereby doesn't exposing their neck or their ears or their or their or their breasts. Now. Aisha radiallahu anha tells us about the Prophet's companions, the women companions of the Prophet that she says, may Allah be merciful with the women of, of the Muhajir, Al-Muhajirat. When this verse was revealed, they ripped off part of their, of their clothes in order to cover themselves. Again, they didn't question, you don't find that any sort of questioning of the Prophet sallallahu or the command of Allah azawajal. The verse was revealed, so they rip off part of their, the length of their, um, of their dresses in order to cover themselves properly. Um, another example uh, that we find is we find an example uh, regarding uh, jihad. Uh, we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, in the Quran, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, informs us that when the children of Israel with Musa alayhi salam were commanded to enter into uh, the Holy Lands, Al-Ard al-Muqaddasa, uh, that they refused. Because they didn't want to wage jihad. They didn't want to sacrifice. Uh, so they, the ayat tell us that they said, the children of Israel said to Musa, فَذْهَبْ أَنْتَ وَرَبُّكَ فَقَاتِلَ You and your Lord go forth and fight. إِنَّهَا هُنَا قَاعِدُ We're going to stay, stay here remaining. Sitting. These are the people who are with Musa alayhi salam. So, in, in one sense, they're like Musa's companions. And they are people who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has just saved from Pharaoh. And they've seen all these miracles. They've witnessed it. And yet they were not willing to sacrifice at all for the religion. So, when, when the ayah came for them to command them to fight, they said, you and Musa, Musa you and your Lord go and fight. We're going to just to sit here. There's a, a very powerful people in that land. We're going to fight them. Now, when the Prophet ﷺ went out with his companions uh, to go after the caravan of Abu Sufyan, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed that the caravan of Abu Sufyan missed, they missed the caravan of Abu Sufyan. And so the caravan got, the, the announcement came to the people of Mecca, so the Meccans in return sent out an army against the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. Now the, this is in the, leads to the Battle of Badr. Now the Prophet ﷺ's agreement with the people of Medina when the people of Medina came to the Prophet ﷺ in Al-Aqaba, they gave him uh, an allegiance, right? 
And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ made the agreement for the people of Medina when he came to Medina was what? That they would protect him, they would defend him. There was no stipulation the Prophet ﷺ had made upon the Ansar that they would engage with him in attacking somebody outside. This was not from the, the conditions of their allegiance. So now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees something. They're, the caravan escapes and an army now is heading towards them. What, and the Prophet ﷺ is poorly prepared for this in the sense that he only has two people who are on horseback. They do not have weapons. And now coming an army of the strongest of the Quraysh with all their weaponry and all their men and all their horses and camels and so forth. So what's, what's the, how is this situation it's going to be? So the Prophet ﷺ Asked, asked, he, he, he asked for advice. So Abu Bakr stands up and, and, and says, we will fight and so forth. Umar stands up, Abu Ubaid al Jarrah stands up. The Prophet he doesn't, he doesn't take on their, the decision. So the Ansar realized that the Prophet was waiting to hear what they're going to say. Because there's no agreement between them and, yes, the Muhajirun from Mecca, they were persecuted by the Meccan pagans, they were kicked out of Mecca, so it's understood that they were going to fight. But what about the people of Medina? There's no, you know, commitment upon their part. Prophet didn't take any obligation from them that. So, I mean, they stood up and they spoke. And one of the things that was said was by Al-Naqdad, he says, O Messenger of Allah, we will not say to you as the children of Israel said to Musa. However, go and we will follow you. And one of the Ansar said that even if you were to command us and you were to take us to command us to go into the Red Sea, into the, into the, we would follow you. Again, there was no hesitation upon their part to obey Allah's commands. So the question is, and this is Inshallah which is really the, the main thrust of the lecture, that we saw in the beginning those commands from Allah where he commanded the Prophet's companions right, uh, to obey him, and to obey the Prophet وسلم, and, and not to follow footsteps of Satan and so forth from what we read. And as we mentioned, that those commandments were not only for the Prophet's companions, yes, they were directed to them initially, but they're also, by extension, they include us and every single person of the Ummah of Muhammad <clears throat> And we also gave four quick examples of how the Prophet's companions, when certain verses were revealed from the Quran, certain ayah, how they responded immediately. Whether it was dealing with the Khamar, whether it was dealing with the Riba, whether it was dealing with the Hijab, whether it was dealing with Jihad and fighting. They had no hesitation. So the question now comes is if we should ask ourselves, okay, why is it, why is it that the companions had such a readiness to obey Allah and His Messenger, and the succeeding generations of Muslims don't have that readiness to obey Allah and His Messenger? What's the, the secret? The commands are still there. The same ayat which Allah revealed to them, Ya Amanu, is still in our presence. It's not like we do not have those commands anymore. And likewise, also, the commands are still in effect. We are believers, so we should, they apply to us also. So why is it now that we find the Ummah, whether this generation or previous generations, or perhaps succeeding generations, uh, will not, does not have that readiness to obey Allah and His Messenger like the Prophet's companions? What was, what's the secret to it? Can, can we discern that answer? And then if we can find that answer, can that we then change ourselves to uh, you know, become more compliant to Allah's commandments and the Prophet's commandments? Well, on the one sense, obviously, I mean, language has part to do with that. Because the Prophet's companions were pure Arabs. They spoke the Arabic tongue purely. And today the Arabs themselves do not speak an Arabic of the same purity as 
the time of the Prophet's companions. And so therefore, even for the Arabs themselves, they have a difficulty in understanding Allah's commands and the commands of the Prophet let alone those members of the Ummah whose tongue is not the Arabic language. So that's one, that's one reason, obviously. Another reason is that the Prophet's companions, that these incidents occurred in their presence. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down these ayat and these things that occurred in front of them, they used to see the Prophet receive the revelation in front of them. They'd see the change in his, in his, in his pallor, in his, in, his, in his body when he would receive the ayat. The incidents which were talked about in these different ayat of the Quran were something that occurred in their lives and so forth. That obviously had an effect. The third reason, the third reason is that no doubt that their teacher was better than the teachers that we have. For their teacher was the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Because part of the task of the Prophet Sallallahu is not, I mean, part of his mission, his, 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 the reason why Allah sent him, as Allah tells us in the Quran, يَثْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ That he recites unto them his ayat. So he tells us that Allah said this and Allah said that. Well, anyway, this has come to us. We know what Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala has said. We still hear these ayat. And also, part of it is, وَيُعَلِّمُهُمْ الْكِتَابُ وَالْحِكْمَةِ He teaches them the scripture and the hikmah, the wisdom, the sunnah. So part of it is that also that their teacher was the Prophet Muhammad So the effects of his teaching and his raising of them and his, gui- his, his, his guiding them and his, and his, and his, has had an effect on their character without doubt. So those are three reasons. That the language, that they witnessed the events, that their teacher was the teacher, it was the Prophet But there's a fourth reason. A fourth reason which we should never forget. And that is that they were more pious and more fearful and more righteous unto Allah. And that's why Ibn Mas'ud said that they are the most, you know, the most righteous of this ummah in their hearts. And the most deepest of knowledge. And for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them to be the Prophet's companions. It's not, you know, don't, don't just imagine that it's just, you know, by, well, it's just by Allah's qadr that, you know, without any wisdom behind it that myself and yourself, we weren't among the companions of the Prophet It's not just by like that. But rather it is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose those men and women to be the companions of the Prophet because they were the most righteous and the most pious and the most deepest of knowledge of humanity. And so therefore the Prophet deserves such people around him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave such people around the Prophet to the Prophet. And that's a criterion which we should not forget. Yes, language, witnessing of the events, their teacher was the Prophet Muhammad He's the one who raised them. He's the one who, 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 who grew them. These, these are all things we cannot you know, negate its effect. But the point is, is that they themselves were the best of humanity, as the Prophet said. The best of humanity is my generation. And so therefore, it only behooves them to react in such a manner. Now, does that mean that nobody would... Nobody would, uh, we would not find anybody who would be, have the same type of reaction to Allah's commands except them, so that, no. The Prophet ﷺ said that there will always remain a part of his ummah upon the truth. So in every generation you're going to find a group of the believers who are going to respond to Allah and to his messenger. Not everybody's going to be disobedient. 
But in their response, the response will not be like the response of the Prophet's companions. Not in terms of the, their hastefulness, nor in terms of their the, the, the strength of their convictions or the true uh, the true attitude they have to Allah's commands and His Messenger. In conclusion, uh, we we mentioned uh, about ten or so passages of the Quran where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala commanded them to obey Him and His Messenger Sallallahu and mentioned the benefits of that and some of the ayat and some of the other things that could happen if one does not do that. We gave about three or four examples of how the companions readily accepted Allah's commands and that of the Prophet Sallallahu whether dealing with khamar, whether dealing with riba, whether dealing with the hijab, whether dealing with jihad. And then we asked the most important question, which is, I think, to me, it's really the aim behind this topic, is that why was it the Prophet's companions reacted in such a way? It's because obviously the language, obviously because of they witnessed the events, obviously because their teacher was the Prophet but more importantly we want to underscore because they were the most pious of this Ummah and the most deepest in knowledge. And so therefore since they're the best of humanity they really exemplified how a Muslim should be. So they become really examples for us that we can pattern ourselves over their lives. Um, I, I like sometimes to give references of, of books or something like this uh, that a person can further read um, uh, to uh, and I couldn't find much in the English language, but there is one chapter in a, uh, a book by Sayyid Qutb uh, Miles Salt called "The Unique Quranic Generation," and it has some nice points regarding uh, this aspect. A person can refer back to it to supplement uh, what was mentioned in this lecture. أقول ثوري هذا فسقر الله ولكم سبحانك وهم بحمدك شرعنا إذا أنت أسقرك وتوب إليك وجزاك خيرا. So the brother's question was about the companions before Islam and after Islam. Some people say that before Islam they were doing many bad things, so how can we evaluate them? Well, first of all we should know there's a general rule that when a person enters into Islam and if he is true in his Islam, everything which preceded before his Islam is wiped out. Whether it refers to the companions of the Prophet or for those brothers and sisters who enter into Islam in our time. If they enter into the religion and, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that Islam, you know, wipes out that which became, comes before that. So if a person is true in his Islam, then those previous sins that a person might have engaged in or previous behavior is wiped out. So now, for instance, let's imagine a person is 60 years old, a man or a woman, enters into this masjid now and takes the shahada. Those previous years, if that person was truthful in their shahada and truthful in their Islam, thereafter what happened before that is wiped out. Because it's a great, it's the greatest repentance. The greatest repentance is to come into Islam, to repent from unbelief to Islam. Now, as far as them specifically, they were not all of them who were of, of bad character and so forth. And for instance, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, anhu, was known that in Jahiliyyah, he used to avoid idol worship, he used to avoid uh, falsehood, he used to avoid any sort of uh, harm, harming of people. And he was known for his great character before Islam and after Islam. And he was known for his avoidance of shirk and, 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 and paganism before Islam as, of course, as a Muslim. And yet there were others who were, I mean, people like a, a person comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, O Messenger of Allah, I have killed ten of my own daughters by my own hands in Jahiliyyah. There were, there were like those people, pagan people. There were those who worshipped idols. There were those who even fought the Prophet ﷺ for many years before they entered into Islam. 
So they were different groups, but th- but this has nothing to affect with their religion. In general, though, in general, the people of the time of the Prophet wasallam, as humanity, the believers and the unbelievers were were of better quality than the people of, of, of later days. And you can see this that even the pagans, in terms of the way they reacted, like when Abu Sufyan, before he became a Muslim, and when he was brought in front of Heraclius, Caesar, and to ask the questions that when, when the letter came from the Prophet ﷺ to Caesar calling him to Islam, so Caesar went to find somebody from the Arabs and found that Abu Sufyan was with some of his companions. They were in Palestine on trade, so he brought them to ask about, you know, who is this person who's sending me this letter? I want to know, wants to know some information about him. So Abu Sufyan, um, so the uh, Heraclius, the uh, Caesar, he puts Abu Sufyan in front and puts his companions in the back. And says to his, says that if he lies, make some sort of signal to show us that he's lying. Abu Sufyan says, had it not been that my, the people would have known that I was a liar and they would call me a liar, I would have said about Muhammad this and that and this and that. But because he was a pagan, but he felt that the shame of being known as a liar, even though this is his enemy, he's in war with them, was too great for him to lie. So the point is that even though even though they were in Jahiliya, I mean some of them they still had some of them had very noble character, I mean as a whole, you know, and something. Then other things that were, I mean, as 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 they said when 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 the same type of issue came when Amr bin As came to take those companions who had fled from Mecca to to Ethiopia in front of a Najasi. What they what did Jafar and Rehaba say? We were a people of ignorance. We used to not respect our family ties. We used to. Uh, you know, commit fornication, we used to kill, we used to, you know, so this is how they were, this is how they're describing themselves. And then to us came this good. Yeah, so. uh, the brother's asking to explain this hadith which is reported in Sahih Muslim and elsewhere that the Prophet said that humanity and nasu ma'adin, that the people are like mines, like the mines of gold and silver. The best of you in Jahiliyyah are the best of you in Islam if they have religious understanding. In order to understand this hadith, we should understand when was this hadith said. Because by understanding when was the, the hadith said, it explains to us, uh, it gives us an understanding of this hadith. They came to the Prophet and they said, who's the best of people? Who's the best of people? And the Prophet said, it's Yusuf. Because he is a prophet, who is a son of a prophet, being Ishaq, I mean, being Yaqub, excuse me, alayhi salam, uh, who is the son of a prophet, Ishaq, who is a son of the Prophet, being Ibrahim al-Khalil alayhi salam. So he's the best of people in terms of his genealogy. A prophet, the son of a prophet, the son of a prophet, the son of a prophet. So they, they, didn't, they didn't want this answer. So the, the Prophet asked, asked them, are you asking them therefore about the Arabs? You know, which tribe is the more noblest tribe and so forth. This is the, the Prophet understood from it. And as they said, they, they, they confirmed that this is what they were seeking. The Prophet said that people are like mines. Gold and silver. In other words, like when you, if you've ever um, said anything about geology, you know, um, if there's a gold mine or a silver mine, depending upon the purity of the ground around it, the amount of gold you'll find. So sometimes it's, the gold is so mixed with the rock you can't, you can't pull it out. Or the silver is so mixed with the rock you can't pull it out. And sometimes the mine is such that you can just bring out so great gold, amounts of gold and silver out of it. Okay. 
So the Prophet here is saying the people are like that. In other words, people's in terms of their descent, in terms of their families and their environments, are like that, like gold and silver. The best of them in Jahiliya, those who in Jahiliya were known as being the most noble, the most, the most honest, the most uh, uh, good in character and so forth, are the best in Islam if they receive religious knowledge. In other words, that you know, those people who have good character when they're in Jahiliya, okay, also will have good character when they come to Islam if they have religious knowledge. Yes, what, what is, that's a very good question. What is the legal definition of a Sahabi? A Sahabi is whoever has met the Prophet And the reason why we don't say who sees the Prophet we say who has met, because certain blind people met the Prophet like Ibn Umm Maktoum, but they did not see him because they're blind. So, it's not seeing him, but whoever has met the Prophet believing in him, and then dying upon that belief. It doesn't matter the age. If the person has met the Prophet ﷺ while believing in him, uh, then and dies upon that belief, he is considered from the Sahaba. Now, here uh, comes the uh, the question of those infants, right, who were with the Prophet ﷺ since Prophet's time. Uh, some of the scholars have considered them not to be from the Sahaba, and others have said they are from the Sahaba, those who are like one month old and so forth. So this is, a, this is an issue of dispute between the scholars. But there are very few individuals who are like this. I mean, the individuals who actually you come, that you find that they were actually, during the time of the Prophet were one month or two months or three months, you know. I mean, they're just a handful of, pe- of, of people. It's not, but the majority of the people are people who were adults and who were, you know, I mean, people who had discernment where they could actually understand what the Prophet was saying. Or, and so, so whoever sees the Prophet even if it's just for a moment, seeing, uh, meeting him, excuse me, and believing in him, and he dies upon Iman, uh, then he's a Sahabi. So if he met the Prophet and he didn't believe in him and later became a believer after the Prophet death, he's not considered from the Sahaba. And likewise, if he, uh, if he, if he met the Prophet believing in him and then apostated from Islam and died upon unbelief, then he's not from the Sahaba. But if he dies upon uh, Islam, he's a, a, a from the Sahaba. The, the two hadith are interconnected. The first hadith didn't say that they would respond, but that it would be upon the truth. And in narrations from the truth, they will fight upon the truth. So, if they're fighting upon the truth, that's the highest level of, of Islam. Because as the Prophet said, that the, the, the apex, right, he described as the camel's hump, but the apex of, of Islam is in jihad, fi sabidillah. So, the fact that the Prophet said there was always be a group of his ummah fighting upon the truth, shows that there's always going to be a group of his ummah upon the true teachings of the Prophet ﷺ. Unlike the, the, the followers of the other Prophets, whether Musa salam or Isa where you can no longer find on the earth people who truly follow their message. I mean, their message got lost completely. So here, the Muslims, even though maybe large sections or great numbers of the Muslims might deviate, there will always remain some people in the front of the truth. Now, this hadith has a connection with the other hadith that you mentioned. The Prophet ﷺ said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise at the start of each religion, at the start of each century, excuse me, in, in the Hadith of Abu Dawood, uh, who will revive or renew uh, the affair of this religion. Okay, So this renewal of the religion is something that happens at the beginning of each century. Uh, now the Hadith says men, and the word men doesn't mean one's person, as sometimes people interpret it. Okay, But the word in the men in the Arabic language can also be applicable to a group of people. Right? So at the beginning of each century, and if you look at Islamic history, at the beginning of each century, you find a revival to the religion. Okay. So obviously those people who are reviving the religion and renewing the religion, they're part of that group which is upon the truth. I mean, this, you cannot but be the same. You know. 
But it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who's in that group is one of the revivers of religion, because the people who are in that group are of degrees. You know what I'm saying? There's those who are imams, leaders, and then there are those who are followers. Um, the, the scholars have, have asked this, does Qarn here mean generation or century? And Muslim understood it from century. Muslim understood it as century. Yes, they're still considered Sahaba. I mean, Uyayn ibn al-Hiss and al-Aqra' ibn al-Hafiz are not like, there are, there, are, there are from those who are from his Sahaba who committed major sins. And the Prophet stoned them for zina. And he cut off the hands of thieves. And he whipped those people who, who, uh, who drank uh, al-Khamr and so forth. But at the same time, the, 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 the good deeds that they have from seeing the Prophet and believing in him is so great that even with these sins, there's no comparison. You see? You see? I mean, for instance, now you find a person who's among the sinful Muslims. Let's say a Muslim who the hudud have been applied upon him for stealing or for zina or for drinking or thumb and so forth. Or let's say there's a person who's free from those, has abstained from those sins. His iman is not like the iman of those people who were with the Prophet The blessing and the faith that they had in their hearts for seeing the Prophet and believing in him, that is greater than what comes from the people after them. And so therefore, they still have the blessings of being his companions, even though they committed major sins. Because the condition is not that they're free from major sins. The condition is not that they're free from sinfulness. The issue is that they believed in him when they met him, and they died upon Iman. That's the stipulation. Even if, even if we were to imagine that one of them believed in the Prophet ﷺ, then left the religion, but then came back to religion, and died upon him, he's still considered for the Sahaba. Yes, the people who, who were with the Prophet in his farewell pilgrimage are considered from his companions. And that's why when these scholars, they try to say how many of the companions of the Prophet they usually give the number of 120,000 or 124,000, something like that. Because these were those who actually were in, in Hajjat al-Wida'ah with the Prophet his farewell pilgrimage. Okay, uh, about this number, approximately. However, though, if you look at how many companions do we know, if we look at Ibn Hajjat al-Isaba, where he tries to enumerate the companions. If you look at it, I guess the number is 9,000 something. You know, I mean, there are some, some of them who he mentions who he says they're not from the Sahaba. But, I mean, so he, he's, you know, but he, he, he tries to gather everybody who has been reported to be from the Sahaba. I mean, some of them he, he, he says that they're not from the Sahaba. And sometimes he says, well, this person is known by so-and-so, Ibn so-and-so, he's actually so-and-so, Abu so-and-so, it's the same person. So there's some repetition also. But he'll, he'll mention him twice, so you can know that this person is actually the same as this person. You know. So, um, so, but in general, I mean, if you just look at the number, just without you know going through those details, you find about nine thousand. So that means, I mean, of the hundred twenty-four thousand or uh, of those who are from the Prophet's companions, we're aware of them of you know only you know less than ten percent, eight percent or seven percent of them. We have some sort of familiarity with who they are. The rest of them, we don't know who they were. They were just people who were from the people of Arabia who believed in the Prophet Sallallahu but they do not have anything which is any report of them. In the sense that they neither transmitted hadith of the Prophet they did not, are not mentioned in, by name in any of the, the battles, so we know who they are and so forth. But they're just from the Muslims, from the Sahaba of the Prophet No, when it says that all the Sahaba are doing, it means all the Sahaba, without exception. It doesn't just mean those like those in Bayat al Because there's, there's not a connection between sinfulness and lying. And this is where people get confused. They imagine that in order to be trustworthy, Okay, one must be free of sin. That's not true. You might have a dispute with somebody now. Okay, and you might have been the one who's caused 
you cause injustice to that person, right? So, but when you stand in front of the judge, and the judge tells you to say what, what happened, you, do, you, you refuse to lie. Once an oath is taken from you, you refuse to lie. Yet you cause injustice to that person. That's why you're standing in front of the judge. He brought you in front of the judge to resolve the dispute. But yet you refuse to... So if we can see that amongst ourselves, right? It doesn't mean that because they had sinfulness and therefore that there's a question to their integrity. No. Because telling the truth and not lying against the Prophet ﷺ is one thing and being free from the sin is another thing. So the Sahaba, I mean, they were amongst them who were, you know... And also the other thing is, is that, I mean, if we look at our religion, right, the majority of what is transmitted from us for us from our religion, in terms of whether it is from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ or from the uh, fatawa, you know what I'm saying, uh, the, the, the uh, opinions of the, of the Sahaba. Those who transmitted to, the, to us, I mean, are generally of the highest integrity. You see, so there's no, there's no, there's no problem there. You know, I mean, for instance, like there's a, if you look at the, uh, of them, I mean, you, you find that those who, 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 who are, are, are few, you know what I'm saying, I mean, who have some sort of doubt has been brought to them. You know, so. But most of them have the highest integrity. I mean, they're known for their worship of the lies, which are their truthfulness and so forth. And likewise, even if one was to cast doubt upon them, their, their statements are verified by others who no doubt would be cast about them. So there's corroborating evidence and so forth. So. Uh, not, not, from, not from the Quran directly, uh, that all of them, in that sense, that I'm aware of, but the, the statement of the Sahaba that we used to not lie. We did not know why. Like Ennis in the Malik says, you know what I'm saying? We did not know lying, nor did we used to lie. That's one time when Ennis in the Malik is saying a hadith, and he said, he said, he said they asked him, did you hear it uh, from the Prophet He said, I either heard it or somebody who told me who had heard it. We did not lie against the Prophet nor did we know what lying was. So this was a characteristic of that generation, that they would not lie against the Prophet And so therefore, their trustworthiness and their integrity is, is beyond reproach. Well, I mean, in terms of, in, no. in terms of, for instance, like the, the, the regulations concerning alcohol and concerning um, uh, the hijab and the other example I gave about the time of Battle of Badr, right? Islam was not even all of Arabia. It was just confined just to Medina and the surrounding areas. Okay. Now, in terms of the last example I gave about the ayah regarding the riba, right? This was one of the last ayat reveals in the Quran. So by this time, Arabia had entered into the fold of Islam. Because the tribe of Thaqif took, entered into Islam uh, after the, uh, the conquest of Mecca in the year 8. The Prophet ﷺ died in the year 10, uh, 10 after his hijrah. And the conquest of Mecca was in the year 8. And Thaqif entered into Islam after that, in the year 9. So, or, so therefore, it was, you know, towards the end, Arabia had generally accepted Islam. No, I mean, in, in the sense that, I mean, we, but you can, you know, we know that we were with the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, the companions, they counted that those who made the farewell pilgrimage with the Prophet ﷺ was about 124,000. Okay. Now, at the same time, at the same time, not everybody in Arabia made pilgrimage with the Prophet ﷺ. I mean, the Prophet ﷺ said that the best of the second generation is a man by the name of Uwais al-Qarani. He had leprosy and Allah cured him except for one spot in his body. It's, it's white and the rest of his body is darkened. And if, you, if he comes, right, then ask him to make Istighfar uh, for you. Ask him to, uh, to, to seek forgiveness for your sins. Make dua for that Allah forgives your sin. Because his, his, his prayer is answered. The Prophet then explained why. That he, you know, heard the message and believed in it. But because he has a mother who, is, who he has to tend to in Yemen, that's the only thing which prevented him from coming to the Prophet. So here we have a person who's in Yemen, in Arabia. He believes in the message of the Prophet, but yet he does not come to Medina. The Prophet tells us the only reason that it prevented him 
from coming to Medina is because he's tending for his mother. So he's not from the Sahaba, but he's from the Tabi'in. So not everybody in Arabia, of course, you know, when the Prophet made his farewell pilgrimage uh, in the 10th year, I mean, which was just some 80 days before his death, not all of Arabia came to Mecca to make Hajj, just like now. And when there's Hajj, even now, now it's very easy to travel and so forth. Not all of Arabia, you know, makes Hajj. Just, I mean, some people. So the same thing. That's true. I mean, they, I mean, they say, I mean, if you look at some of the, the emissaries of the Prophet wasallam and and, and when they went to the different regions in Arabia, and the people of like the people of Bahrain, and the people of Oman, and the people of Yemen, you know these areas, especially Yemen and Oman, which has had large numbers of people and so forth, accepting Islam, uh, you can you can you can see that this they were I mean the people in Arabia were in the millions, okay. And likewise, you can also tell this by looking at you can make some analysis by looking at the 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 battles in which the Sahaba fought thereafter. Um, in, in, uh, against the Persians or against the Romans. Because if you figure that this is within a generation of the Prophet it's still the same generation, and yet a tribe would put forward 10,000 people to a battle, okay? So if these are 10,000 able-bodied men of the tribe, how many of the tribe, of their men, you know what I'm saying, who, who are not able to fight? Are children or old or ill or something like that? Then how much is their women for? You see what I'm saying? So it shows that there was very large. I mean, you can you can you can sense that there was you know large group of people in the time of Arabia at that time. It wasn't just you know small numbers, but they were in the millions of people. 